Welcome to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. Religion for Life is a co-production of WETS-FM on the campus of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC on the campus of Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia. My name is John Chuck, and I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. You can find out more information about my congregation at fpcelizabethton.org, and of course, uh, check out religionforlife.com for information about my program and all kinds of other good stuff. Today, we are going to talk about courage. What does it take to be a courageous person? What does it mean to be wholehearted, to be all in, to go ahead and take those risks, to be real? My guest helping us in this discussion is Dr. Brene Brown. Brene Brown is a research professor at the University of Houston Graduate College of Social Work. She spent the past 10 years studying vulnerability, courage, authenticity, and shame. She spent the first five years of her decade-long study focusing on shame and empathy and is now using that work to explore a concept that she calls wholeheartedness. And she poses these questions. How do we learn to embrace our vulnerabilities and imperfections so that we can engage in our lives from a place of authenticity and worthiness? How do we cultivate the courage, compassion, and connection that we need to recognize that we are enough, that we are worthy of love, belonging, and joy? Dr. Brown is the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Daring Greatly, How the Courage to be Vulnerable Transforms the Way We Live, Love, Parent, and Lead. She wrote that in 2012. She's also the author of The Gifts of Imperfection and I Thought It Was Just Me. You can watch her on two TED Talks that have received over 6 million views. The titles of these talks are The Power of Vulnerability and Listening to Shame. I'm excited to have uh, Dr. Brene Brown with me via Skype from Houston, Texas. Welcome, Dr. Brown, to Religion for Life. Hi, I'm glad to be with you. I'm, I'm listening to that and I'm thinking, dang, that's a lot of vulnerability. <laughs> you just put yourself right out there, don't you? I, I don't know how that happened. I really still, I still can't make sense of it. But yeah, I kind of do. You know, it's, and, and that really relates to the title of your book, Daring Greatly. Uh, tell us how you came to that title. Okay. Um, it's, it's a vulnerable story, actually. Um, right after the TED Talks had gone, the TED Talk had gone viral. Um, I was feeling incredibly exposed. I was having a really hard time. And one of the things that really dawned on me and kind of a, uh, dawned on is not the right word because that's that sounds nice um kind of struck uh, me and uh-huh. hit me in a hard way was that i think even though you know i was excited about my research and passionate about what i was finding and wanted to get it out with the world to the world the truth was that i was really had engineered my career to stay right under the radar out of fear of criticism and out of fear of everything that comes with being too much in the public eye. And so I kind of lost control of that with the TED Talk. And so one day when I was feeling particularly discouraged and had you know, made the huge mistake of reading some anonymous comments on like the CNN site or something where I'd written something, mm-hmm. um, and they were just mean-spirited. I mean, they weren't constructive feedback. They were just kind of, just kind of crappy comments yeah. um, about me and appearance and all kinds of stuff. And um So I sent my kids off to school, my husband left for work, and I sat down and I just numbed myself completely without like eight hours of Downton Abbey. And after it was over, I got on my computer and I started kind of looking around, reading about England during that time. And I 
Googled Theodore Roosevelt because um, I wanted to see if he was president at the time Downton Abbey was happening. And I came across this incredible quote that like literally changed my life. Um, can I just read a very short passage to oh, you? Please, please do it. Yes. Yeah. So what I read was, it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. And when I read that, I mean, I literally just started crying and I thought, you know what? This is who I want to be. I want to be in the arena. I want to be all in in my life and my work and my family. And I want to... I want to take chances and I want to, you know, show up. And so, and that's the first thing that hit me. And then the second thing that hit me about that quote um, was it, it represented everything I've ever learned in a decade of studying vulnerability. Hmm. You know, that vulnerability is not winning. It's not losing. It's showing up and being seen. And with that comes great moments and really hard moments. But I think the thing that's consistent is the most meaningful moments of our lives happen when we're being authentic and real. So you had that TED Talk in 2010. And, yeah. then, and then you had this experience with reading this Teddy Roosevelt quote. So there's a sense in which you had been doing all of the study on vulnerability and shame, and then it kind of hit you personally. Is that right? It kicked me in the butt would be a better way to say it, <laughs> okay. yes. All right. I used to say, in fact, I used to say, and in fact, up until about really a year ago, um, when I wrote about it or I talked about it in an interview, I used to say that my data drug me screaming and kicking to this new way of being. Um, but now I think I would say it saved me, you know, it, mm. it did drag me kicking and screaming. Don't get me wrong. Cause I'm not, I don't do vulnerability naturally. Um, you know, which is why I'm a researcher and armored up in a lot of different ways in my life. But, um, yeah, it's, I think it's really hard to do this work and not think about how it affects your own life. Yeah, because, uh, of course, with academic and research, you, you are supposed to, right, be behind the screen and, you know, you're analyzing something else. And then in, in your case, and when we're talking about obviously something that affects us at the deep human level, it, it you can't help but also be drawn into it. The research became very personal um, and there was a very definitive moment for me in 2006 when um, I was coding some data. And, you know, I spent the first six years really heavily just trying to understand shame you know, what is this thing, what is that emotion that we all know that makes us feel not good enough? Like, where does it come from? How do we deal with it? Why do we have it? And so in 2006, I kind of, I had all this data and all these interviews and I realized, man, embedded in all these stories of shame were stories of resilience, were stories of, you know, people like me who wake up you know, in this deep culture of scarcity of never good enough, perfect enough, extraordinary enough, you know, rich enough, beautiful enough, you know, everything we're not enough of. There were people who I'd interviewed along the way who, when they woke up in the morning, it's not that they lived in a vacuum or somewhere different than us. They just, 
they made different choices. They woke up and said, you know what? Yeah, it's scary. I'm, I feel uncertain. I feel vulnerable, but I'm enough. And so I wanted to know what they had in common. And as I started looking and answering those questions, it became very personal because what I realized is I was, you know, I called these folks the wholehearted because what they reminded me of um, were people who were just living and loving with their whole hearts, like they were all in. And so one of the, everything that the wholehearted were, you know, trying to move away from were the things that defined my life at the time, perfectionism, judgment, comparison, productivity of self-worth, you know, what will people think? And so it became very personal on that day <laughs> and every day since. And that's the day that you talk about was your breakdown slash spiritual awakening. Is that the posi- yeah. positive reframing of that? Yeah, no, I really, I was, I had, a, I, you know, I really actually put the data away. I called some friends and said, I need a therapist. I think I need a therapist. And I was like, not anyone too touchy feely. Uh-huh. Um, and I went to see a therapist who really only saw mental health professionals and people who are trained in, you know, my, in my work, uh, not my work, but in, you know, psychology, social work. And I actually took a syllabus with me that I had created like in Excel um, about what I wanted to work on based on the research and how long I was willing to spend on it. <laughs> and, and somewhere in that period of time with her, which of course my spreadsheet lasted all about 20 seconds, um, I said, I think I'm having a breakdown. I think this is a breakdown. I'm, what, what, I'm falling apart here. And she, Diana was her name, is her name. She, she's not a therapist anymore. She retired after, after me. <laughs> um, but she said, well, you can call it a breakdown, but I see it more of a, as a spiritual awakening. And then she said something really interesting. I said, maybe, maybe you can't, I said, why does it feel like a breakdown? And she said, I'm not sure that you can have one without the other. Mm. Um, so it was a really important and great and hard time in my life where it was kind of research or heal thyself a little bit. Yeah, you know, I, I'm doing a, a series of sermons at my church uh, using Matthew Fox, a theologian, and he's talking about the four uh, paths of creation, spirituality, and and one is the the way of letting go and letting be, the via negative. And I was thinking as I was reading your work that uh, being vulnerable is really part of that. It's that letting go of all of those things that give us our identity and, and control, our spreadsheets, our perfectionism, and, and it's going to a place that we don't have any parameters for. Uh, and we really do have to uh, allow ourselves to kind of fall or sink into a vulnerability. And it, it is scary. It is like a breakdown, and it's also like a spiritual awakening. It is. I think it's, you know, what's interesting is in doing the research, I went back out and I, you know, I asked thousands of people, what is vulnerability to you? You know, what what is going, you know, what does it mean to you? What are mm-hmm. your experiences of it? And people said things that were so... You know, because I think like a lot of, well, like a lot of people, I had the idea that vulnerability was weakness. And I knew in my own life that didn't feel true. I knew that being vulnerable was the most courageous and brave thing I'd ever tried doing. And I've done some pretty, I think some, you know, pretty typically brave things. Um, but when I asked people, they said things like, vulnerability is my first date after my divorce. Hmm. Vulnerability is sitting with my wife who has stage four breast cancer and trying to make plans for our children. Vulnerability is trying to get pregnant after my second miscarriage. 
Vulnerability is negotiating a raise. It's, you know, getting excited, enthusiastic for my son who is trying out for orchestra and really wants to make first chair, sending him off to school with all, you know, with a hug and my best wishes and knowing that's not going to happen. You know, that vulnerability is, to me, there's no equation where being vulnerable equals being weak. Um, I think, in fact, the vulnerability is our most accurate measure of courage. It is, it's truth. It's, you know, I, I had a man once tell me that it's like standing on a very sharp edge and your choices are to fall back to what you know that won't move you forward, but it at least is what you know, or to fall forward into what you don't know, where, where hope and possibility live, you know? And I think it is, it's, it's so scary, but I, but you know what? I have to say this, I have to add this. It is uh -huh. scary and it's terrifying at times, but I don't think it's anywhere as scary and terrifying as spending your life on the outside of the arena, wondering what if I would have shown up? What if I would have said I love you first? You know, what if, what if? Right. All those regrets of what if. Uh, my guest is Dr. Brene Brown. She's the author of Daring Greatly, How the Courage to be Vulnerable Transforms the Way We Live, Love, Parent, and Lead. Now, some folks, uh, if you're just joining us, this, this is a Religion for Life. Some folks listening to this program might say, yeah, I want to be vulnerable, but, I'm, uh, but what happens if it doesn't work out? Uh, what do you do? How do you give people the inspiration to go ahead and, and take a jump? What, 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 what is that that makes people do it? Well, there are a couple of things that I think people, I think people who are practicing vulnerability, embracing it have in common. I think the first thing is, and this was definitely true as I, as I set out on this kind of spiritual adventure for me. Um, and I say spiritual adventure because one of the things people have in common that are doing this is a real clarity about their values and what's important to them. And, you know, kind of the lens through which they see their lives. And for me, you know, I think if you're going to, you know, using Teddy Roosevelt's metaphor of the arena, I think if you're going to go into the arena, the one thing you better bring with you is absolute clarity about what's important to you. Because if you're going to show up and you're going to be vulnerable and take risks, you're going to get your butt kicked. I mean, you're going to get pushed around. There's no question. I mean, it doesn't work out every time. I mean, if I'm going to really try something new in my work, um, sometimes it's going to work out. It's going to be awesome. And sometimes it's going to be terrible. But the, the value that I hold on to in those moments is that I, that courage is a value that's really important to me. Um, being clear about being in service of my work and not always playing it safe because that's not in service of my work. And so I think the one thing that you have to get clear on, and we all have to get clear on are our values. I want to be a courageous person. And if you want to be a courageous person, you have to be vulnerable. So how do you develop a sense of who to be vulnerable with what? I mean, you were vulnerable with 6 million people on your TED Talk, but you weren't vulnerable about everything you are, yeah. I'm sure. Uh, what are ways we can develop a sense of what to reveal to whom and when? Right. I think there's a real sacredness about vulnerability. And my my kind of what I've learned from the research participants is you share your story with people who've earned the right to hear them. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important 
to remember that vulnerability, you know, there are four myths of vulnerability. The first is that it's weakness. The second is that we can opt out of doing vulnerability, that I can say, ah, nice topic. I don't do vulnerability. You know, to be alive is to be vulnerable. Vulnerability is simply uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. We experience it every day, all day. To be in relationship is vulnerable. To be in work is, you know, leadership is vulnerable. The third myth is that vulnerability is letting it all hang out. And so when I say, you know, we trust our stories with people who earn the right to hear them, I think it's important to remember that vulnerability is ultimately about trust, intimacy, and connection. So vulnerability without boundaries is not vulnerability at all. Um, I, you know, like you said, I did share, you know, some vulnerability with, you know, when I did the TED talk, which ultimately, you know, 6 million plus people have seen, but there wasn't a story that I shared in that talk that I had not already shared with people really close to me, thought about, processed through, got comfortable with, owned in a, you know, in a a way that I felt like I could share. Um, it's just really important that we share with people with whom we have relationships that can bear the weight of our story. So developing those relationships is so important. You know, I was thinking uh, recently as I was reading your book about the idea of letting go of those uh, ideas that people have about us or letting go of those, you know, worrying about what people think to be our authentic self and have our own voice. And then I thought, yeah, but I don't want to lose my relationships with others. Um, I, I don't want to lose um, that sense of I do care about what people think. Is, is there a balance there with that tension too? Absolutely. You know, like I think – when I, you know, I think when I hear people say, I don't care what anyone thinks, which is usually filled with a lot of cuss words, uh-huh. um, a big, a big red flag goes up for me because when, we, you know, here's the, t- here's the tightrope. When we stop caring what people think, we lose our capacity for connection. When we are defined by what people think, we lose our willingness to be vulnerable. And so it becomes a tightrope walk, you know, and I think the thing that balances us, it's different for all of us. For me, you know, when you picture, you know, the flying Walindas or somebody walking across those tightropes, they always have the balance bar in their hand, you know, and to me, that bar is shame resilience. It's understanding what triggers me and what makes me feel small. And it's also my faith, Hmm. which goes back to the values. Like, and so I try to maintain that balance of I want to be open and connected to people. So I do care what people think, but I also want to have the courage to be myself and be real. So I don't want to be defined by it. My guest is uh, Brene Brown, author of Daring Greatly, How the Courage to be Vulnerable Transforms the Way We Live, Love, Parent, and Lead. You can find information about her books and her work on her website, brenebrown.com. Let's move to uh, this uh, discussion of this other topic that nobody wants to talk about, including myself, uh, shame. Uh, what, uh, what is that, and, and how, how, do we, how do we manage that? You know, I'll give you the the quick one, two, threes that I always share with people because I think it's very helpful. The one, two, threes of shame are we all have it, number one. Mm -hmm. It's the most primitive human emotion that we experience. Um, We have about 40, 50 years of data now that show us the only people who don't experience shame are people who don't have any capacity for empathy or connection. So we've all got it. It's that warm wash that comes over us and makes us feel small and less than. Number two, nobody wants to talk about it. And number three, the less we talk about it, the more we have it. You know, shame, I call shame, you know, I refer to shame as the gremlins. 
which, cause you know, I'm, I'm crazy about a good metaphor. If you can't tell by now. Um, <laughs> but you know, the, the shame gremlins drive two tapes, you know, not good enough. And who do you think you are? So when we want to be vulnerable, when we want to raise our hand at a meeting and say, I've got, I've, you know, everyone's excited about this idea or this new project. And, you know, you, you know, what you, what you really want to say is, I, I, I understand everyone's excited. I think they're, I think we need to be careful, but shame is that gremlin that whispers in your ear. Hey, you're the only one in here without an MBA. Keep your mouth shut mm. or you're not smart enough or what will people think? You know, and so shame keeps us small. And I think one helpful way to think about shame is that we're hardwired for connection, neurobiologically, physically, emotionally, I would argue spiritually hardwired for connection. Shame is the fear of disconnection. It's the fear that there's something about me, something I've done or something that's happened to me or I haven't done that makes me unworthy of love and belonging. And, you know, we can't live without love and belonging. In the absence of love and belonging, there's always suffering. And so shame is that fear. And so what I studied um, and still look at is what do men, if we can't get rid of shame, how do we move through it in a constructive way so that we can, you know, and what I found is that men and women with high levels of what I call shame resilience have four things in common. Um, the first is they recognize shame. They know when they're in it. They know what triggered it. They kind of reality check some of those crazy expectations and messages that fuel shame. Like we're supposed to be perfect and, you know, be all knowing and have it together. They reach out, tell their story. That's what they have in common. Um, and the biggest part of that is kind of this counterintuitive, we need to, we need to tell our shame stories with people who've, again, earned the right to hear them. Yeah, and you've really modeled that in your book and in your talks. You talk about how you felt uh, like when you first did that TED Talk and you, and you felt uh, after you did it, you said you kind of had a, was it a vulnerability hangover or, or something? I, I think that's what you ah. said. Yeah, and so you modeled being able to feel that and rather than to go into defensive mode to talk about it and use it as a teaching moment. Yeah, I mean, one of the stories that I tell in Daring Greatly is, you know, I someone someone emailed me and asked me to speak at an event. And I, you know, I get a lot of great offers, which I'm gr really grateful for. But I only accept about 10, 15% of them because I have young kids and, you know, and I'm trying to live wholehearted, not just talk about it. Mm -hmm. And so I emailed back and said, I, I'm sorry, I can't do that. Um, I have a family commitment. And he emailed, which was very hard for me because one of my gremlins is – it's not one. I have like a whole choir of gremlins <laughs> that say, don't disappoint anyone. Don't let anyone down, you know, kind of that whole be everything for everybody. And so I, you know, I emailed back and said, I can't do that. And he emailed back and said, you know, you're not wholehearted at all. You're, you know, you're super selfish, you know, just kind of this crappy email. And so I immediately went into shame. And when we go into shame, we're really not fit for human consumption. I mean, some of the, the worst things that we've ever done to our children, our students, our employees, our partners, we've done when we've been in shame. And so I have a mantra, which is don't talk, text, or email anyone when you're in shame. Like I have to get back on my emotional feet like all of us do. But I didn't listen to myself. And so I forwarded the email to my husband and I wrote this really terrible thing about this guy, like 
you know, what a jerk, but it was super colorful, um, PG 13 email. Mm-hmm. And I hit reply instead of forward. Mm. So it goes back to this guy. And so, you know, immediately I'm in shame. I mean, like, and, and one of the interesting things that men and women with high levels of resilience have in common is they physically recognize when they're in shame. Um, and so I knew I was in shame. My heart was racing. My mouth got dry. You know, I went into tunnel vision, time slowed down. And so shame resilience is, you know, about my first, my first thing that I do is talk to myself like I talk to someone I love. So instead of beating myself up and God, I'm so stupid. I can't believe I did that. I'm an idiot. You know, trying to talk to myself as if I was talking to Ellen or Charlie, my kids, you know, Hey, it's okay. You're imperfect. We all make mistakes. And then we really have to reach out and share that story because shame craves silence. Okay. Yeah. We have to share it. And when shame is met with empathy, it kind of dies on the vine. So So I called my husband and a really good friend. I told him what was happening. They were able to kind of talk me through it and love me anyway. And um, I was able to email back, apologize and set some boundaries about kind of future communications. And so shame resilience is really about moving through those hard moments constructively. Yeah, so it's not about not experiencing shame. We all do, but it's 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 really knowing what it is and and knowing the signs of it and and responding in a in a in a positive way as we can. That's exa- well said. That's exactly it. You know, I, I'm thinking of uh, my my guest, Dr. Brene Brown. Thinking of uh, the last two years for you have been quite a whirlwind. You've been on TED twice. Your talks have been watched over six million times. You've just published a number one New York Times bestseller, Daring Greatly. You're a highly sought after speaker. You've published curriculum on the topic of shame to help other counseling professionals with this work. You even have uh, T-shirts. Uh, can I ask you to be vulnerable one more time here? What does it feel like to be uh, in the spotlight and successful and and famous? Do you still have that? inner gremlin that says you're not good enough after all this? God, yes. Yeah, of course. Um, But the truth is I'm kind of an introverted person. I'm actually a very introverted person and I'm the most fueled and the most juiced up when I'm home with my husband and my two kids and, you know, we're playing cards or just hanging out. Um, And that just hasn't changed. That's really that's when I feel most in my skin probably. And so, yeah, it's, it's been a vulner- very hard, very fun, very difficult, and very weird. <laughs> well, you know, when you start talk about this work, I just think that uh, you've truly hit on something big. I mean, every, all the behaviors that we have from rage to perfectionism to cruelty to addiction are all go back to shame. Um, and, and I'm wondering if, do you think it's just the tip of the iceberg uh, that there's much more to learn about shame and vulnerability? the only thing I really wanted to do with my entire career was to start a conversation, a national conversation about shame and vulnerability. And I think that's happening. I think we're just beginning. I think we want to be brave and I think we want our lives. I think we want more joy and I think we want more transparency and authenticity. So I do think we're at a tipping point and I think it's bigger than of course my work. I think it's about the human spirit. Dr. Brene Brown, my guest, she is the author of Daring Greatly, How the Courage to be Vulnerable Transforms the Way We Live, Love, Parent, and Lead. A final question, Dr. Brown, if you could put your insights and your message and your passion and what you've learned into a 30-second commercial, what would your commercial say? Show up and be seen. 
we need that's we're looking not for who you think you're supposed to be, but who you are. We need you. Dr. Brene Brown, my guest on Religion for Life. Thank you for being with me. Thank you. You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. You can find more information about this uh, program with Brene Brown at religionforlife.com. Also, uh, information there, uh, sermons, articles, all kinds of great stuff, upcoming programs, links to podcasts. That website is religionforlife, all one word, dot com. My name is John Schock. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Uh, you can find more information about my congregation at F. PCElizabethton.org. Religion for Life is a co-production of WETS-FM and WETS-HD1, Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC-FM, Emory, Virginia. Be well.